Please remain standing and pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, now and fill this place with your presence. We pray, Lord, that you would take this uh, strange and difficult parable and, Lord, open it to our hearts so that we might hear good news of the kingdom of God within it. Lord, I pray that you would give us receptive and open ears, Lord, and that you would give me a mouth to preach, and we will give you the praise and the honor and the glory, for it is in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I don't usually plan this, but it does seem like that Father Keith always draws the short straw when it comes to what we're going to be preaching on. He always seems to get the, the difficult passage, like the last time that he preached, he had the passage from Luke's gospel that ends with Jesus saying, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be by disciple, and you know, that's the kind of stuff we make him preach. And then... Then I get to preach about the lost sheep, fuzzy, cute, little, you know, that's what I like to do. But, oh, not today, brothers and sisters, not today. Today I get the tough passage, the parable of the crooked, the dishonest steward. What in the world is Jesus talking about in this passage of Scripture? What are we going to do with this parable? Hearing these words again, this is my reaction. It's like, you know, Lord, you were doing great. You were on a roll. We love the parable of the lost sheep. It makes us feel warm and fuzzy. Uh, we love the story that sounded like John Calvin wrote it of the, of the woman who sovereignly and irresistibly searches for and finds the lost coin that can't even choose to be found. That was great. And even though we haven't heard it in a, a series of those two parables, the following parable is even better than that, Lord. The one you, where you talked about the prodigal son, you knocked it out of the ballpark with that, and about the self-sacrificing love of that father who runs out and meets him and kisses him and puts a ring on his finger and a robe on his back. Wow, those were great. But what are we supposed to do with this? And here's how this, you, let me remind you what the parable says. Hey, y'all, <laughs> that's the uh, that's a Semitic uh, phraseology there that's often overlooked in the translations. <clears throat> hey, y'all, there was this crooked manager who was embezzling funds from his employer and then gets caught. And to get out of trouble, he cooks up another scheme to cheat his employer out of even more money, and then he gets away with it. Go ye and do likewise. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So if this parable disturbs you, you are not alone. It disturbs me. I'm the one that has to preach it. And those who want to reduce parables to morality plays are just offended by this particular tale that Jesus gives us. This story doesn't lend itself to the stained glass window treatment. I mean, you never go into somebody's church and they're showing you around and they say, oh, here's the beautiful icon of the good shepherd. Oh, that's so inspiring. And here's the beautiful icon of Our Lady of the Sign. See, she's got, you know, Jesus is God from God, and that's what we see in that icon. Oh, yeah, that's very inspiring. And then what's this icon over here? Oh, that's the icon of the crooked manager. You never see that. Nobody ever does that. No, the only people historically who have really liked the parable of the unjust steward or the crooked steward 
are those who use it as a rock to throw at the Christian faith in general and at Jesus in particular. Yeah, um, this was the, the Roman emperor Julian the Apostate. Anytime you get the, fr- the title the Apostate, that gives you a little clue about somebody's spiritual life at that point. Don't, you don't, don't, don't want to be known as the Apostate, okay? But Julian, the emperor Julian the Apostate, he loved this parable. He loved it because he could use it as a convenient hammer to apply to the heads of Christians. Look, your own Jesus commends dishonesty. What kind of religion are you guys following? And so he liked that parable. Brothers and sisters, this, this, this tale from Jesus over the years has just been embarrassing for many of us. What are we going to do with this parable? How are we going to pin this parable down and wrestle the good news of the kingdom of God out of these words? Well, if we are going to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to get into the context in which Luke is writing the parable. We need to slip into the crowd, first of all, with the rest of the folks who are hearing Jesus tell this tale. St. Luke's Uh, St. Luke helps us to look around and see who's in the audience. Back in Luke chapter 15, where where this series of parables began, remember that was uh, Jesus was with the Pharisees and the scribes. He was eating a meal, and then they were angry that he was welcoming the tax collectors and the sinners, that they were gathering to hear Jesus. And we know that the scribes and Pharisees are in that crowd because they're the ones, surprised who were complaining that the tax collectors and sinners were gathering to hear Jesus. And we know that the disciples are there because we just heard that in Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Luke chapter 16, verse 1, he says he's telling this to his disciples. So who's in this crowd? This is a group of peasants, of Roman collaborators, the religious elite, and Jesus' own disciples. So this is a very mixed group of folks. And how are they hearing this parable? We have to turn on our sanctified imaginations at this point. And if we do, we will see that many of the people in this passage are not, are not the Pharisees and the scribes, but the rest of this crowd are listening to this parable with knowing grins on their faces. And they're nudging their neighbors at particular points in this tale. Because the characters in this parable are probably very familiar. The types of people described in this parable are very familiar to the crowd who's listening to this parable. There's the respected employer who owns a large estate and rents plots out to tenant farmers who are just like probably some of the tenant farmers who are in the crowd listening to the parable. There's the crooked estate manager who maybe is just like that guy who works at the big farm down the road. And what's more, they've all heard this kind of story before. It's a trickster tale. You know what trickster stories are? I mean, they're in the Old Testament. We hear that. If you go back in the book of Genesis and you read the stories of Jacob, he's, uh, he's always tricking somebody. He's always scheming. I mean, think about Jacob and his brother Esau. And remember how uh, his mama helps him with this. He dresses up in uh, Esau's clothes and he puts some fur, you know, takes some like goat fur or something, puts it on his arms because it says Esau was a hairy man. He's a manly man. And, uh, and, and Jacob stayed at home with the women in the tents. That's what it says. I mean, he's just not a manly man. Esau was out hunting. And so you know that story how he steals his brother's birthright by pretending to be Esau to his father Isaac. 
And then later on, we hear the story about Jacob, you know, and Laban, his father-in-law, and how he tricks Laban, and he gets more sheep, you know, than he thought, uh, than Laban. Laban thought he was going to pull one over on Jacob, but Jacob ends up tricking him. Basically, anybody that Jacob deals with, he's going to trick at some point. They're used to these stories. And it's amazing how trickster stories show up in nearly every culture. They're in Native American culture. They're in um, Scandinavian culture. I mean, every culture has these. They're in African culture. Every culture has these trickster tales. Usually, these stories um, are where the social or the economic or the physically weaker trickster uses some clever scheme to come out on top when he is dealing or she is dealing with her superiors. And you are familiar, you, if you were like me, you grew up with these stories too. I don't know, I don't think they're still on TV, but uh, when I was growing up, I mean, Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner, you know, uh, the, those cartoons, Bugs Bunny, El, El, Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. Bugs Bunny's always tricking Elmer Fudd. And then the, you know, the Roadrunner and the, and the Coyote, you know those stories. In fact, I think the reason that so many commentators don't get this parable. I think so many re- the reason that so many people don't understand this parable is because on one level, it's supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be funny. Just imagine a thousand years from now, if a scholar would be analyzing Warner Brothers, Coyote, and Roadrunner cartoons without using humor as a point of reference. You'd get something, probably a monograph with this title, The Physical Influence of Acme Giant Anvils on the Velocity of Ground-Dwelling Desert Avians. (laughs) It just doesn't make sense to do it that way. But what trickster tales are really good for is when you need to slip in under the radar and say something that subverts the conventional wisdom of society And the subversive core of Jesus' story of the unjust steward has actually already been laid out in the three parables he's just told before this. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. In fact, this parable that follows right on the heels of the prodigal son story has so much in common with it, it's almost a continuation of that story. In the end, the prodigal son and the unjust steward, both those characters in those stories, the prodigal son and the unjust steward, both cast themselves on the scandalously gracious character of the noble master. And listen, listen, that's the point. Like the three parables that came right before this, this is a story, listen, about God's scandalous, self-emptying love and costly mercy, but it's told with a twist. So we have to put on our Middle Eastern eyes. We need to get our Middle Eastern spectacles and take a look at this tale again. You know, one of the things about any good storyteller is he knows how to tell a story very economically, usually, so that you are invited into the world of the story. You're not told every detail. You're told the story in a certain way so that you already know components in that tale. And that's the same thing that's going on here. Look, as a first century Jew living in Palestine, I know by listening to this tale without having to be told these details, I know some things. First of all, I know that the employer is a wealthy landowner. How do I know he's a wealthy landowner? Well, because a measure like a measurable is like 10 gallons. So anyone who is owed a thousand gallons of olive oil, anybody's owed a thousand gallons of olive oil is wealthy. Probably a little greasy too, but wealthy. 
definitely wealthy. And I know that he is a well-respected landowner in his community because somebody cares enough to tell him that his manager, his estate manager, his steward is cheating him. Otherwise, they would have never told him. I know that he is a gracious, he has a gracious and a generous nature because he doesn't put the manager in jail or sell him and his family into slavery in order to recoup the losses. I know also that the estate manager is as guilty as homemade sin because when he is confronted with his crime, he doesn't say a word. In fact, as a Middle Easterner, I'm shocked because even if he were guilty, I would expect him to argue his case. We were in Israel years ago, and that was one of the, one of the unifying things among you know, the Jewish um, community in, in Israel and the Arab community in, in Israel is everybody liked to argue. I thought people were mad all the time. No, that was just sort of like their, you know, that's what they did for fun. They just argued about stuff. Somebody, one of our um, Jewish friends told us, yeah, you've got, you know, if you have two rabbis arguing, you have three opinions. You know, so uh, <clears throat> it's just always that way. And so I'm shocked. I know he's guilty. This guy's guilty. He doesn't even argue. And I know that this crooked, crooked manager is a genius in seeing all the angles of the situation. He's a brilliant judge of character and relationships. This guy has amazing situational awareness. He doesn't repent. He doesn't see the error of his ways. All he does in this story is just keep scheming. And here's what he says. I've got it. I'll make my employers, uh, my employers' debtors love me by reducing their bills. But more than that, I'm going to make them complicit in my crooked deal. You sit down and you change your bill. And I'll, oh, that way I'll always have something to hold over them so they'll have to take me in when I lose my job. But wait, there's more. My ploy will only go further to enhance my employer's reputation as a good and generous man. So I'll pull him into my scheme too because I know he's a generous man. He hasn't put me in jail. He hasn't sold me into slavery. And he won't be able to go back because he's so good and generous and everybody's going to think so good of him. He's not going to be able to go back and demand full payment from his tenants because that would just make him look small and petty. The master looks like a prince of a guy. The tenants are happy and beholden to me. So I'll have a home. Everybody's a winner. So at the end of the day, this manager marches into the landowner's office. He plops down the account books on the desk, and he stands there looking remarkably smug and confident for somebody who has just lost their job. And the master just shakes his head. He knows he's been had. You are a scoundrel. You are a thief. But doggone it, you've got brains, and you've got style. So what is commendable about this crooked steward? Why does he get an attaboy? He is commended. This is so important. Listen. He is commended not for his crookedness, but for his cleverness. For the fact that he understands the master and his situation. He's not commended for his crookedness. He's commended for his cleverness. He accurately reads his own desperate predicament, but more than that, he knows exactly what the master is like. He knows his master's character. Are you ready? This is it. The unjust steward is willing to bet the farm, literally, to stake it all, that above, all, that above everything else, his master is a Lord of mercy and of grace. 
he's willing to stake it all that his master is a Lord of mercy and of grace. Now, is that subversive? You better believe it is. What if God's first reaction to those tax collectors and sinners who are lost and in the far country of their own brokenness isn't judgment, isn't wrath, isn't smiting? What if it's really mercy? What if the first impulse of God towards those who are lost and broken and sinful is mercy? What if it's grace? What if Yahweh is a missionary God who will put on flesh and come all the way into the wilderness of our lives to seek the one lost sheep, to light the lamp of the incarnation and to frantically search the house of his universe for that one lost woman or man upon whom he has conferred infinite worth? What if God is willing, just like the son, the, the, the father of the prodigal son, to hike up the skirts of his robes, throw his dignity to the wind, and run to the edge of existence to throw his arms around that lost prodigal child? What if God was willing to humiliate himself, strip himself of his dignity, and plead with the lost, resentful, self-righteous son who says, I've never even had a young goat to go out and have a party with my friends, and you let this son of yours, who's been laying around with whores, come back in your house, and you put a ring on his finger and a robe on his back, and, and you give him the fatted calf. How dare you do that? And he says, old son, you don't understand. We must celebrate for this son of mine who was dead is now alive again. He's lost, now he's found. What if God would, and I know this sounds kind of crazy, but what if God would be willing to stretch out his arms of love and let us nail him to the hardwood of the cross so that everyone might come within the reach of his saving embrace? Well, brothers and sisters, the amazing, wonderful, glorious thing is that according to Jesus Christ, that is exactly what God is like. And it's about time we start to believe that. Uh, we were up in the prayer room right before this. And, um, and i got to tell you, I, I know when I accepted Christ, I knew I was saved by grace. But I don't know that I still know that I'm kept by grace. God's disposition of grace towards us has not changed. What if in our lives as Christians we were not afraid, we were not afraid that somehow God's generosity would run out? No matter who gets elected, no matter if we lose religious liberty, what if God doesn't change? What if his generosity does not run out? Think of how we would love. Think of how we would give. Think of what we would be willing to risk. Think of what we would be willing to sacrifice if we thought God was as generous as giving as the unjust steward thought that his master was. If a crooked steward, if a crooked, cheating manager thinks that well of his employer, then why don't God's children think that good of him? And that's the point of the story. What if we believe that there were untapped oceans of love and power God is ready to pour out on this world through us? What if the next time the chalice 
was tipped toward our lips. It wasn't just a drop of wine, but breakers and billows of grace rolling over us into the world. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto man. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. So what are we going to do with this parable of the crooked steward who bet his life on the grace and mercy and generosity of his master? Well, how about if we go and do likewise? Praise the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I invite you at this time.